Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's show, we have a special guest. Eric Biedner has written a book called There and Back. Oh, it's a page turner. Yes, this guy is pretty prolific. I mean, as you're going to find out, 25 plus novels, 100 plus short stories, uh, creates his own book covers, former musician, artist, editor. I mean, he is a jack of all trades and a master of many. So please welcome Eric Beatner right here on The Thriller Zone. Eric, how in the world are you? I am very well, David. Thanks for having me. So it's funny. I was having a flashback this morning uh, to your podcast, which I want to drill down uh, into a little bit. And I pulled it up and I'm looking at it and I'm like, man, look at all these hitters. Eric's just had some hitters. And what's, what's he done lately? Let me put October 21. I'm like, oh, he's not doing anymore. Are you still doing your podcast? No, no, I, I, I shut it down. Uh, it was because of uh, things like we went through this morning. Divas like me who go changing the schedule at the last second. <laughs> it just got to be so much, uh, you know, as, as you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot of coordinating. It's a lot of scheduling. And, you know, when I started it, I had a partner, Steve Loudon, um, and it was, it was easier with a two man operation. Then he's, he stepped back and I was a one man band. I mean, I was, I was booking and, and, and I edited the show really heavily. It's my, it's my day job is I'm a television editor. So I like life with the boring parts edited out. So I was spending so much time doing that. And I, I sort of looked up after a while, I was like, man, I haven't written anything in so long. <laughs> and, and as you know, you know, it's like you, you get requests and I, and I, you know, I got on the radar of publicists and, you know, all that. So I was getting 15, 20 requests a week and I wanted to talk to everybody. So I would start overbooking and then about, oh, let me add an extra episode this month. And it just got to be, I was like, ah, I gotta, I gotta step back. It's so funny. You would say this, this is so funny to me because uh, we were, I was having dinner with my wife a couple of nights ago and I said, you know what, maybe I wonder if it's time to say goodbye to the TZ. And she said, what? I'm like, I don't know. You know, she goes, but you love it. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. It's not about not loving it. I said, but yeah, uh, just like you, Eric, um, the minute it started getting any traction, they started coming out of the woodwork. And I'm like, oh, yeah, bah, 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 bah. and you're, you're doing one a week, then it's two a week. Sometimes you'd be three a week, so you get ahead. And then I woke up one day and I went, I haven't written a single word in like nine months. Yeah. It, 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 the difference there being that my wife was like, yes, close it down. <laughs> I'm tired well, of you taking all Saturday afternoon to then try to coordinate schedules with like, well, this person's in Australia, so I have to do this at 4 a.m. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's. Uh, I, I wonder if there's two sides of this picture. I wonder if people realize just how much work it takes. And I'm not sitting here trying to make, oh, man, it's such a tough world because you get to sit and talk to superstars like Eric and you get to read great books all day. And I'm like, all of that is true. However, it takes, uh, 
you know, it takes a lot of work. So yeah, uh, maybe it's time for you and I to team up. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why do I get the feeling that I would be doing all the scheduling and maybe some of the editing? <laughs> because I'm like you. I mean, I book them. Uh, I, I cut them. I, you know, and I'm cutting for audio and video. I don't, I don't remember writer types, your podcast being video. No, we didn't do any video. Uh, yeah, we, we found that that was a deal breaker for a couple of guests. They, they, they didn't, didn't want to have anything to do. And I think part of it was like, you know, can I do that? Can I just roll out of bed and do this and I don't have to get ready for anything? Well, and you know, I've always said, yeah, you can certainly do that. Um, I, I've had a, I will not mention their names. I have had a few that literally <laughs> rolled out of bed and it showed. And I said, <laughs> if you're good with it, I'm good with it. And, uh, after the fact, when they check their, hair in the mirror, they said, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, well, I just assumed that you were okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. There's our little warm up uh, because I know I'm on a time crump. This is funny, folks. Eric and I were talking back and forth via uh, texting going, you know, we wanted to push it back just a little bit so we could record earlier because he needs to get into the office, which I want you to tell the story. But I'm like, I woke up this morning to point down rain and I'm like, where are we in the Amazon? Yeah. Well, I, this is the first time that I've had to go into the office in a long time. I, you know, I, I work in television so, and I, I'm an editor. And once the pandemic hit, we switched to remote. Every editor I know is now working from home. I know a, a handful of people who've moved out of the state. They're like, hey, I don't need to be in L.A. anymore. Great. I'm going to move to where it's cheaper and, you know, life is slower. So I, I think that horse is out of the barn. I don't think editors are ever going back. But there are some productions where... You know, for example, this morning I'm screening the episode that I'm working on with the exec producers. This is our first time all watching it together. We're going to get notes. I, I totally get that. That's that's an easier process to do all in the same room together. We can hash out ideas. We, you know, it, it, that, I get it. Yeah. But it's been a while, <laughs> and so now I'm I'm having to do this thing that I used to do daily, and now I look at it like, oh man. I have to go all the way up to 405 into Van Nuys. And like you say, you wake up and it's it's raining in LA. Oh man. And that, you don't know what's going to happen. So all of a sudden I was like, well, I'm going to give myself an hour to go, you know, 22 miles. Like, I don't think that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) People who are not familiar with that uh, and having done three tours of duty in LA, I I remember that very well. Well, we're going to get you out in time. Listen, we're going to talk about uh, there and back. And by the way, I, I get it that I'm a little bit late to the party. This came out, this dropped, what, November of last year? Yeah, early November. So, I mean, late's better than never, right? No, it's it, the, look, the book business is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, very well said. Well, we're going to dig into that. But, you know, I uh, when you have praise coming from people that says things like, Eric's a crime writer's crime writer. I wrote that, read that, and I'm like, whoa. And then the new maestro of more, you know, you got to dig deep into the work. And then, uh, and then again, once again, to say, I can't believe this is the first book of yours uh, that I've read. When I turn around and I go, wait a minute, he's got 25 novels at least in it, over a hundred short stories. I'm like, where did this kid, this is a prolific output for a kid your age. I mean, come on. Oh, kid, my age. Would you stop? I'm, I am literally, I snuck in at the tail end. I am literally a child of the sixties, David. I was born in 69. So 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I've I've always been a storyteller. I, I think in in one form or another. I'm, you know, my first love was film, and I fell in love with with the movies. And I went to film school, and I've I've made that my career. And I was a screenwriter for uh, for many many years. And uh, you know, I, I just think in one way or another, I, I'm always thinking of a little something and, you know, whether it's observing people in that writerly way and you go, oh, what's that guy's deal? And then your mind just starts spinning out and, and, you know, wondering. And I think it is that sense of wonder about the world that makes a writer, you know, you, you have to, you have to look at the world a, a little bit differently and you have to be able to create, you know, the world that you want to see in a lot of cases. And, and for me, you know, it definitely is that kind of thing where I'm, I read to go to a different place and to experience different people in different, you know, worlds that I, I, I wouldn't normally come across in my day-to-day -day life. So I do the same thing as a, as a writer is I try to, you know, delve into worlds that are far and removed from my own, which for me is, is the crime world. I am a very boring, <laughs> safe person by design. Uh, you know, so when I write about criminals and people doing stuff that's uh, on the wrong side of the law, that is a completely new world to me. So it's, it, it takes me away in the same way that I enjoy being taken away when I'm a reader. Interesting. I did not know that you were a screenplay writer, but now that I think about it and I look at your stylization and the way you set up, um, you set up, uh, intrigue, you set up that, that pacing. And, uh, now I get it. Cause there is a, I don't want to say that your book reads like a screenplay because a lot of people don't like that. But what I'm saying is it takes me there instantly. I feel like I'm watching a television show or a movie, which is to me, one of the greatest compliments I could give you. Yeah, no, that, that's high praise for me. And look, I, I, my shift into writing novels in the back of my mind, it's all just a sort of a backdoor way to get, to get to Hollywood. You know, I, sure. I, I sold a bunch of scripts. I got paid a couple of times. Nothing ever got made. And uh, if someone describes any of my books as cinematic, I say, great. Do you know a producer? Let's, this thing is ready to go. Let's, let's write the script and get it made. Right. Well, now here's a question because you mentioned it out of the gate that you're an editor. Do you talk about what show you edit for? Uh, well, I'm freelance, so I, I go all over. I edit mostly nonfiction stuff. Right now, uh, I'm uh, doing my 12th season of The Amazing Race, which is a, a blast to cut. It's, it's, it's really, really fun. I love it. Wow. Dude, that's no easy feat. I mean, I edit a little video for a podcast, but you're you're taking uh, primary shots, key shots, B-roll up the yin-yang. You've got yeah. multiple cameras. I mean, folks, if you've never watched an editor, that is daunting. But you've been doing this a while, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I've, if you know, I I literally graduated film school, and two weeks later, I was on a plane to L.A. and and I've been working really consistently ever since. So it's it's the kind of thing I think you editing, especially. I think you you kind of have a head for it, and yeah. I think it's a lot of the same part of the brain that makes a good writer. You know, I I my whole day is spent on structure and and pace and, and you know and and sort of cutting out anything that's unnecessary. So that's why I think you know that's why my books are tend to be shorter and and they're tighter. I don't have that 
1500 page Stephen King thing in me. I just, I couldn't do it, you know? And, you know, for better or worse, most books I read, I sort of get to the end and I go, yeah, it was really good. I probably could have cut 50 pages out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. What do you clock in at? You're at 344. Yeah. I could have probably cut about 12 pages out there. Yeah. See, there you go. I I went on and on about the the blood on the rock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your opening page, which is speaking of blood on the rock, your opening now. This is the kind of that's the kind of size for an opening page. So it's about uh, you know about three four paragraphs, and it just that's that's what it's all about is the blood rolling down the rock that's sliding from the hand. I mean, it's it's a killer open. Um, I do want to ask one more question about your podcast because we share, and I didn't know this, but it's so cool to now know that we share some, you know, talent pools here. Your podcast, what I liked about it, I used to walk my dog when he was still with me and we would listen to your show. And I'm like, man, what I dig about Eric's podcast. Well, first of all, you had some pretty great hitters in there. Thank you very much. But I like the fact, and it's something I've often toyed with, but I haven't done. And now that I, now that you've stopped yours, I might just steal your idea. <laughs> but first of all, I like it because it's about 40 minutes, which is to me, it's kind of, to me, it's the sweet spot, 35, yeah. 40 minutes. Secondly, you have like two, three, four, sometimes five people on a show, not necessarily all together. So, which is kind of cool because you're, you're running it more like, um, almost like a TV, like a TV show, like a, uh, like a, you know, like a Johnny Carson of sorts. Right. Boy, there's a, there's an old reference, isn't it? <laughs> and, and that's what I dig about it. And, uh, but yeah, back to your earlier point, it's a lot of work and you, you got writing to do cause dude, you're a writer. Well, and look, I, I think with, with the podcast experience that they, it's permission for you, David, today to, to bring the heat. I mean, don't hold back. I, if, if I'm not crying by the end of this interview, we've done something wrong, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think from the beginning when Steve and I developed the show, that was one thing that we, we talked about was we wanted it to feel produced. We, we wanted it to have, you know, a, a, a slickness to it. Cause I think there's, you know, there, there's a prevailing attitude of, uh, I think of a lot of podcasts, which is like, oh, you just, you flip on a mic, you talk for 90 minutes, two hours, and then you, you click post and that's it. And I was never that much of a fan of those kind of podcasts because again, I, I'm, I'm just used to things being edited down. And, and, and I think it, it, it benefits your guests too. Cause that was one thing I was always very, I was able to reassure everybody and, and say, look, if you, if you don't like your answer, say, ah, I don't like that. Let's go back or don't use that. Or, you know, if they're hemming and hawing, if I answer a question that they don't have an answer for, I just cut it out. And I'm like, I, I, I kept telling everybody like, look, this show is edited. I'm going to cut it all down to make us all sound smarter than we are. And, <laughs> and the guests always appreciated that. And I think the listeners do too. Man, I got to find an editor to do that for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I dig that. And it's so funny. Uh, you can turn on any, you can go to any, podcast channel now and find the people who do that, who say, Hey, Bob, Frank, come over to the house, crack a couple of beers. I got a few microphones to sit down and talk. Um, a, uh, how long do those stick around? B, how entertaining are they for the duration? Anyway, this isn't a review on podcast. I really about you, but <laughs> one of the things I liked about this book there and back is that, and it's funny that I would think, 
think this and say this out loud, but maybe it's because I've worked for some real a-holes in my life. <laughs> but I thought, you know, this is one of those stories that could actually very easily happen. You're on a business retreat. You're hanging out with your coworkers who you may or may not really like, and you're thrown into a situation. Now that's me teeing you up because I'd love to hear your elevator pitch for there and back. Well, yeah. So it's these young sort of junior level executives. Uh, there is a big promotion on the table, which is sort of how, how it sets up. And they're being sent on this corporate retreat that they do every year you know, for the young up and comers as a team bonding experience, but it's also a little bit of a, of a test to see who's got the leadership skills and all that. It's something that they've done before. Everyone knows it's coming, no big deal. They get sent out into the woods, tragedy ensues, and all of a sudden these, you know, MBA city folk are left to their own devices in the middle of the wilderness with no survival skills at all. And you learn very quickly how our humanity can kind of vanish when you're faced with life and death. And I do think that that's something that's been proven time and time again, that that's how people react. It, everyone is always very shocked at how quickly we go feral when, <laughs> when the chips are down. And so that was what w was really interesting to me about this story. And the way that I, I've, I found that it worked best was, you know, the, the, the other side of the coin, I guess, is that, what happens to these people when they try to come back from losing that side of themselves, losing that humanity that, that they have? And, and can you reintegrate into your family and your friends and your job and the things that you've done and said to your coworkers? Like, you know, it's like there any sort of underlying tension between the competition of, is that guy going to get the promotion? Is he like all that, the doors burst wide open when they're out there and it's, Am I going to live through this or not? Is is my survival now more important than your survival? So now you say, oh, you, we made it out alive. Not everyone makes it out alive, by the way. But, you know, you come back and now you have to just work in an office in the cubicle next to this guy again. Well, then, yeah, no, things change. And, and some of the characters change rather dramatically and, and can't reintegrate. So that was the other sort of side of the coin that I found very, very interesting about this story. So, you know, w when when they try to you know, when when you're watching these people go to their lowest lowest point, and then how do you come back from that? I think, like you say, if, if it could happen, and you know, fingers crossed, it never happens to any of us. But uh, I, I I don't think any of us should be surprised how that sort of animal inside is is poised and ready to come out at a moment's notice. Well, and you referenced that a couple of different times uh, in one form or another where you go, you never really quite know what you're capable of until you're thrown into the absolute corner mm -hmm. of desperation, loss, fear, starvation, etc. cetera. And um, having been a Boy Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, um, working my way to the Eagle, I'm still working on that, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's not too is, late. Yeah is you, you learn how you can survive on the smallest amount of sustenance. But boy, reading this, it reminded me to, as weird as it might sound, is to think about that. Because if one were to be stuck in a situation like this, you'd want to be prepared, yeah. uh, which is, of course, the motto of Boy Scouts. But uh, so again, I want to make the point that 
so affected me was that, yeah, this shit could actually happen very easily. All right, Eric, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, you can tell us about your research techniques. You're on the Thriller Zone. The best thrillers, the Thriller Zone. And now back to the show. Well, it, it was interesting that, you know, I started researching survival techniques and survival mm-hmm. skills. And I, I bought a book and I was looking at like, you know, how do you, what's the best way to make a fire and what type of wood do you use and all, all the stuff that I do not know at all. Yeah. I, and I reached a point pretty, pretty quickly that I realized, well, wait a minute, the, these people don't know any of this. I don't need to know any. It's actually better if I don't know. Yeah. So anytime that I would write them into a corner and, and wonder how they would get out, I didn't want to fall back on, well, here's what they should. Here's what the manual says they should do. (laughs) I I was like, well, what, what the heck would I do if I was in that situation? Because that's what I always want the reader to feel. I I want the reader to, to put themselves into the story, whether it's a crime story that's set in the city and, you know, someone's trying to blackmail you or someone kidnapped your child or, you know, whatever that thing is, you always want the reader to, to have that, what would I do moment in a book? I think that's the thing that really grabs readers and gets them to turn the pages. So that that was, it was just an interesting revelation I had (laughs) in the early stages of like, Oh, I I can save myself a lot of research because these people are supposed to be idiots. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny that you should mention that very thing, because at one point, especially when they're trying to go after some fish, I caught myself going, well, you know, this is what I would do. Yeah. And then I'm like, why didn't he Oh, well, of course he didn't mention that because they wouldn't know how to do that. And then, then it just, it keeps it real is what I'm getting at. And the, um, I'm going to, you know, you want to talk about a lot of different things, but I don't want to ruin it because, um, well, I will say that you, I did not see the incoming. Okay. Uh, I can think I can say that. So it's a compliment. Yeah. And it's, it does make the listener reader want to find out. But, and, you know, with the vast amount of books that I read, I almost always see this stuff coming. And this one, I, I might have had a thought along the way, but I'm like, and then all of a sudden it happened and I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't see that coming. So kudos to you, buddy. Thank you. (laughs) But I think that, uh, you know, the way that you ratcheted up tension and um, kept me turning pages because what I really totally dug and this, a lot of people have attempted this and a lot of people are good at it. You have dual timelines. So mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're, you're back there and then well, you describe it because I want to be sure I don't give anything away. Well, just like we talked about it, you know, the story really does follow those two lines of, of what happened out there in the woods and what's happening as they try to come back to, to life as normal or as normal as they can make it again. Yeah. And that was where the, the structural nightmare of this thing happened. And it was a lot of planning and, and, you know, normally my outlines are pretty skeletal and I'll write some stuff down and I'll have, you know, maybe like a two or three page outline and I'll, I'll know the bullet points of where I'm going to go. This one was color-coded note cards taped to my wall and making sure that, you know, I, I knew what to reveal of what happened out there at this certain point that dovetails nicely into what's going on as they're making their way back in and how everyone is dealing with the fallout and then, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think uh, that was a really fun exercise, like you say, in, in escalating tension 
revealing things where I thought that they made sense, you know, but the other thing is it's, I think it's really tricky because it's easy to feel the heavy hand of the author when you're doing that kind of thing. For me, like I've read a lot of books and a lot of huge, very, very successful books where, you know, the chapter ends and it leaves you on a cliffhanger, but it just feels so false. Cause it's like, well, like the author knows what, exactly what's going to happen. And, 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 you know, the, whatever they're doing, it, it feels manipulative and I didn't want to feel manipulative. So I, I, I moved a lot of stuff around. I shifted a lot of things constantly thinking like, don't, I don't ever want the reader to feel like well, he, he's just, he's just toying with me now. Like you, it, and it's, that's such a balancing act. And I'm, I'm really grateful that I've heard from a lot of readers that it did work really well and it didn't feel you know, manipulated in that way, but it's, it's a tricky thing to balance. Well, it makes me think of this, Eric. Uh, I remember when Gone Girl came out and mm -hmm. it was such a phenomenal sensation. And it seems as though everyone is still trying to do the next Gone Girl. And there is a bit of manipulation in that. Um, and that seems like such a harsh word, but it's just part of the writing process. But I often ask myself, or I often read that uh, I'll often find myself reading authors who will sometimes, to your point, play that manipulation and they'll spend so much time crafting the manipulation that and it, and if you can see it coming, then you go, oh, wait, kind of what you just said. Oh, wait, I see that thing coming. And then if all of a sudden it does, especially if it's something really bizarre and, and they save the world in the last 13 seconds, you yeah. you walk away going okay, well, I could have watched a Marvel comic movie for that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I, some people like uh, the, the, the comfort of that. I mean, I think the, the, the difference between, you know, the traditional mystery and the thriller, I think sometimes is that comfort factor. The traditional mystery is, is one. I mean, for me, the definition that I always see is, as the dividing line is a, a mystery looks back and a thriller always moves forward. So if you're saying, you know, oh, someone dies in the first chapter and let's figure out who did it, you're always looking back at what happened and the clues and what led up to it. And then eventually there will be resolution, the world order will be restored. And that's what readers like about that versus I think thriller fans want to always be a little bit off kilter. They always want to not really know is, are they going to make it out of this alive? And is the world going to end? And, you know, obviously if you're dealing with, you know, James Bond or Jason Bourne or whatever, you the hero is going to be fine at the end. That's sure, the sure. world's not going to blow up because there's going to be another book. So I think I've, I've spent a lot of my books trying to give people that feeling of like, boy, I, this main character very well could die by the end of this book or the, you know, this, this is not going to end well, even if they make it out alive, it's still not going to be a, a rosy ending. And I, I personally, I like that feeling when I, when I'm a reader. So that's what I try to give, uh, give the audience. You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I uh, we had a conversation with oh, who was I just talking to? Because it was so smack. Oh, um, yeah, Grady Hendrix. Mm. He was on talking about um, novellas, and we were talking about how many of his novellas have gotten picked up, sold, optioned, etc. And I said, you know, man, is it still true what it used to be? Nobody wants novellas. Oh no, Dave. On the contrary, uh, people are looking for novellas because it feeds the this streaming 
multiple content machine so much. So I go, yeah. So I want to make sure I remember to ask Eric with all these short stories that you've done, do you see a similar thing? Do you think it's cool? Yes. Or okay. Or keep going with any ideas of short stories and or novellas with the hopes that people will still appreciate them and not have to be the 90, 100, 120,000 word novel? Yeah, I, I I love novellas and, and several of my books. That's what I always say, you know, it's like, oh, I, I have 30 books published and I have to sort of put it the caveat. Like a lot of those are very short, you know, some were written with co-authors. So I have to sort of <laughs> quantify all that. But, sure. you know, uh, my, I've got a novella, Dig Two Graves and uh, White Hot Pistol, Nine Toes in the Grave, my horror, horror novella, a stripper pole at the end of the world. You know, they're all in like the 20, 20,000, 25,000. Yeah, no, that, that's a good one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I love it tight and punchy. And and I think it's, if you're talking to Grady's, I think horror always works better short. I think yeah. horror is is a get in, get out kind of thing. Because when you are trying to create tension and sustain tension, there's only so far that you can stretch that rubber band before it snaps. And, uh, you know, again, all respect to, to Mr. King. I mean, he creates entire worlds and he has subplots and flashbacks and it, he, he, he knows what he's doing. I'm not in for a second going to criticize Stephen King. The man is a giant in our industry and deserves all the praise he ever gets. Sure. But I think he gets to me, he gets tagged as a horror writer a little unfairly. I mean, he's he writes thrillers. He writes supernatural. He writes a lot of things. But if you're going to talk hardcore horror I think shorter is better. And I think that same thing applies to crime in a lot of ways, because you want to, I want to come into a story already in motion. Yeah. And I think that you want to, to, you know, you reach that peak and then get out. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of movies from the, from the forties and fifties and, and that sort of classic Hollywood. It's, I always regret that, that my camera doesn't, doesn't rotate because my, as I'm writing, I am surrounded, virtually wallpapered with some of my film noir movie poster collection. So oh, I, I'm I'm staring at all these posters from the 40s and 50s, and if the the thing that I love about that era of filmmaking was it was always like you, you watch those films, they save the day or he gets the girl, whether it's a crime, whether it's a romantic thing. There there's the kiss, the fade out, the end. Yeah. Like what you, you've, you've reached the point they they caught the killer. The mystery is solved. Don't hang around. Right. Fade out the end. Yeah. So that that's the same sort of style that I really like in, in a book where it's like, don't, don't hang on after the fact you you've solved, you, you've answered the question that you set up at the beginning. The readers should be satisfied with that and, and get out while the getting's good. I do want to make one quick reference. Philip Fercasi was on the show, um, and he generally does shorter, and he likes shorter, and he thinks horror is better short, to your point. Also, uh, then he, he appeared at uh, a bookstore, a book signing uh, not far from here recently, and he's talking about his latest book, which was like uh, an epic saga. But he goes, as much as fun as this was, this long epic, uh, I still go back to short. And I think short is best. Plus, I also think not to be a slave to the technology that feeds us, but in a TikTok Instagram world, our attention spans continue to shrink. And sometimes I think 
especially with the amount of competition that there is, Eric, I just say, well, just give it your best shot and keep throwing out there against the wall, right? Yeah. And, and look, you know, every story deserves to be the length that that story warrants. I mean, if you have a story that, look, we all love your favorite TV series, and you're like, oh, I love these characters. I love, you know, if it, like The Walking Dead or something like that. We all want that to go on for eight, nine, 10 seasons because we want to stay in that world. We want to live with these people and, and continue that journey. Yeah. And that's what's right for that story. So I think you, it, when you have the, the epic, you know, novels, it's because we want to be immersed in that world and stay in there as long as we want. You know, that's, that's what, why Lord of the Rings is still selling <laughs> millions of copies every year yeah. because people want to be immersed in this world. And, and I think there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because the, the stories warrant that length. And I think you just need to, you know, if, if you're writing and you're looking at what's my next project going to be, and anyway, and we've all done it. Like we, you know, you get, you get uh, uh, the hook of an idea and you go, Oh, that, Oh, there's something there. And you start to think, and maybe you start to type or you, you know, start to make some notes and then you sort of go, well, that, that's all, that's only a short story. This, that's not a full novel. This, this just the right length for what that idea was is going to be 5,000 words, not 150,000. So you, you, you serve the story and that that's our job as writers. I got in this habit a long time ago when I very first started dicking around with writing and I would, it was usually happening on a Saturday morning. I'd get up, I'd have my coffee, pancakes or whatever. And Saturday was a no stress day. So I'm working during the week on a Saturday. I can be as creative as I want. So I would just have an idea. Maybe it came to me during the week and I'd make a note and I would start writing that story and I would write just enough that I'd go, okay, there's the bones of the story with some really great, nice little notes. I'll set it aside and I'll come back to it later. And if later it is still as impressive, mm. I'll take it on and go from there. And I've got a book that this thick of those ideas. And every once in a while, I'll go pull it out. And sure enough, I'll take it out to the particular length. But I think to your point is, um, someone said, which mirrored your thought is, take as long as it takes to tell a good story is the gist of right. it. So if, if you can tell a fantastic story in, in, in 10,000 or 35,000 or 70, so be it. Well, anyway, here's an interesting point. And I, I want to, as we kind of start wrapping up, I was having breakfast with uh, a couple of gentlemen at the table of thriller fest last year when I struck up a conversation with a guy wearing a cowboy hat. And I wondered if ITW was throwing a rodeo or something that afternoon. <laughs> joke to myself and come to find out it was uh, Mike Bray who runs a boutique house called Wolfpack Publishing in Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I've never heard about that. Mike, tell me about it. And we started talking. I'm like, this is a super nice, super talented guy. Um, impressive list of talent. And then I find out today as I'm flipping through, cause I'm always finding out, okay, where, who, who's the heat behind this? And I'm like, Oh, rough edge press. I never heard of that. Oh, it's an imprint of Wolfpack Publishing, my buddy, Mike Bray. So how did you guys meet? And tell me about th that relationship. I'm often curious about publishing stories. Well, Wolfpack is uh, is m more known for Westerns. And uh, I had done two Right for Hire uh, Westerns for them under under pen names. Uh, and my friend Paul Bishop uh, has, has, does a lot of work with, with Wolfpack. And he, he's become acquisitions editor now. And so he in, invited me into the fold and, the, you know, that kind of thing where they, they have a Bible and they have, uh, you know, seven, seven or eight authors all come 
write an entry in this series all under an umbrella pen name. So I, I, I did two of those for them. Great people, great outfit to work with. Look, the, the, especially the first book I, I, in that sold way better than any of the books with my own name on it. So they, wow. they know what they're doing <laughs> with their market. Uh, and they were looking to get more into, into crime fiction. So they brought in uh, author uh, James Reasoner, who, who's got a, a, a really impressive resume that's decades long, uh, and had him set up Rough Edges Press as their crime division. Uh, and then they went about acquiring, you know, stuff that maybe was out of print. They, you're trying to get some series stuff. So what I did was I moved over. I, I had two different trilogies uh, that were, had the contracts had run out. And Paul said, hey, you doing anything with those? We would love to package those together and, and republish them. So both my Lars and Shane trilogy uh, and my McGraw. But, well, the McGraw books were it was two books at the time. And I said, well, trilogy feels better. So I went and I, I wrote a third book to make that a trilogy for them. Those, so those both the re-releases came out last year. And then they also picked up there and back. Uh, and it's it's been fantastic. They, they, like you say, they, they're just they're great people, great outfit. They, they're a small press, but they, they give it their all. They, they get the books out there. And uh, I, look, I, the other thing I, for the majority of my books, I have designed my own covers. I, I, it's something I do sort of freelance on the side. I've designed, done a lot of covers for friends of mine. And, you know, I have over 100 covers that I've designed. And I, so I, I let go of the reins a little bit. I said, yeah, no, let, let's see what you come up with. Because I didn't have any ideas for there and back. I, I was I was a blank slate. And then this thing shows up in my inbox and I, as nervous as I was, oh, I love this cover so much. I couldn't have been more thrilled. So I was like, all right, the, these people know what they're doing. <laughs> all right. A couple of quick things. First of all, I do love the cover and I, and it, it took me a couple of grabs until, you know, I just thought, Oh, that's a nice color combination. And I'm like, Oh, it's the woods. And it took me a while before I realized what the opposing photograph uh, picture was. I feel like yeah. an idiot admitting that because it's <laughs> so smart and so savvy, but that is so good. That's number one. Number two is I'm looking at your covers and there's a, uh, you jumped, you jumped right ahead to where I was going. I'm like, some of these are really cool covers. And I'm like, I got to wonder, is Eric doing these himself? Does he hire them out? Because what it is, it's a, at one minute, it's very noirish and uh, there's a kind of a low rent look about it. And then in another minute, it feels very, for lack of a better term, high fashion. So you're, you know, sometimes a low rent, you see it and you're like, oh, this isn't going to be any good. But other times, yeah. you, especially in the noir, you're like, oh, that's going to be kind of cool. I can just tell. So I want to know how many of those did you, and you don't have to bang them all out, but I'm looking at two in the head all the way down. Then I get down to like Dark Duet and The Year I Died Seven Times. Those are very specific. All, all four of those I did myself. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then that style of the devil doesn't want me when the devil comes to call devil at your door. Is that all you too? That's all me, yeah. Now, see, dude, there's a guy, folks, here's a guy who not only can, because it's hard to write the book and the design a cover that you go, okay, yeah, I'm good at this. You know, a lot of people try it and they really shouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, we, we've all seen a, a lot of those. I, look, I've I've done every every flavor of of creative endeavor that's guaranteed to never make me any money. I've I've tried in, in my life. You know, I, I am a, a former musician. Uh, you know, I've I've 
showed my paintings at art shows. I've, you know, I've written in screenplays and novels and, you know, I've, I was, I was an actor for a time. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try anything. Even if I know that I'm a jack of all trades, but master of none, but it's just, I just love it. I, I, it's that creative energy that has to come out. And, and I've been amazed every time somebody else has said, Hey, will you design my book cover? I'm like, really me? Like, I don't even have the full version of Photoshop. I'm still working on something that I pirated in, you know, 2003. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. It's a great, uh, you know, reflection of you living the full artist life. I talk to so many writers, you know, who, who, you know, work in a cubicle job that, that they don't like, and the writing really becomes the, the outlet and, and the way that they get to express themselves and, and, and it's something that they latch onto, I think, you know, for their mental health. And I've always felt so, so lucky that I get to do a, a job day to day. That's, that's very creative that, then that I, cause I think creativity fuels other creativity. I think that the most creative people, like, you know, you see all that all the time that you learn that an actor, you know, plays in a band on a weekend or, you know, that your favorite musician is also actually a great painter on the side. I, I think it all feeds one another. You don't need to stick to one discipline. And I, it's just, it's a great, great way to, to live a really fulfilling life, even if you never make any money at it. Cause there's really, there's also nothing wrong with doing something creative purely for the creative act. And that, like, that's like when I, when I do any kind of artwork, you know, the paintings that I've, that I've done, like I'm, I'm not looking to make money at that. It's just something that I enjoy doing strictly for the doing of it. And I think right. that more people need to look at creative endeavors in that way. I think nowadays, you know, in, in this sort of gig economy and everything is, you know, if, if you say, you know, Oh yeah, I, oh, I, I like writing and it, it's something that I do. And it, immediately people want to know, how are you going to monetize that? How are you looking for a book deal? And like, it's perfectly fine if some people just like writing stories on the week you say on the weekend is like, it's, that's a creative thing. And even if you never publish them, even if you never do anything with it, are you enjoying yourself? Are you getting something creative out of it? That's all you need. hundred percent. And, and wh whatever you do creatively, just keep doing it for the sake of doing it. hundred percent. Just enjoy the process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, speaking of, uh, it, exercising all your creative juices. Are you still hosting Noir at the Bar there in LA? I do. Yeah, we, we've had to slow down a little bit during the pandemic times. Sure. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're back We're back doing live uh, events. We had, had a couple last year. I'm waiting to find out if uh, I'm doing a thing at the Pasadena Lit Fest uh, coming up in the spring here up here. I, I might be hosting a, a Noir at the Bar event there. And that might sort of function as our as our spring event. But yeah, that's been my goodness. We're coming up on 12 years that wow. I, I've been hosting that. And we've hosted, you know, almost 400 writers at this point. It's it, and it's become kind of an L.A. crime writing institution. And it's the same thing. Like every time I think, oh, this is so much work and maybe it's time for me to shut it down. I, then I just I, I go to an event and you hear the feedback and you talk to the both the writers and the readers who come out. And I think it's become something that's it's kind of important to people for that sense of community. So I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to keep this going as, as long as I can. And if I'm not mistaken, anybody can show up and it's a free event. Can anybody share their work? I book all the guests, um, okay. but you don't need to be public. Like if, if people want to reach out to me, like we, we've had unpublished writers, we've had people who just have a short story in a webzine, uh, you know, at the same time that we've had, 
you know, people fly in from New York and from down from Canada and in from Australia. We, ho we hosted a trio of Australian writers one time. And, you know, so it, it's it's really I try to make it open to anyone who's got a story to tell. And uh, and the most gratifying thing is always when you have somebody come out and read and it's their first public reading and they just have a short story. And then the next time they come back a year, year and a half later, they're there with their debut novel. And that's just fan. That's happened uh, uh, several times. And it, wow. it's, just, it's so great to say. I definitely want to do that. I have heard about this from various people on the show and I've never, I've never been to one. I've never done it, but I'd love to both be at one and do it. So I'm, I'm going to get on your list. Open invite, David, come on Sweet. up. Sweet. Thank you. All right. As we start to uh, wrap up, if you listen to the show ever, you know that one of the things I close with is I speak to authors, what is their best piece of writing advice? Because my listeners are both uh, seasoned writers and some up and coming writers. So, and, and you're a guy who's done a prolific output. So I'd love to hear, Eric, your best piece of writing advice for our listeners. My, I think, go-to piece of writing advice is not always a popular one. Uh -huh. <laughs> especially among other writers. But I think I it, if, you're, if you're just starting and if you're looking at, I want to try my first novel or, or you know, I want to get into to even just short story writing, I think the, the most important thing to remember is that writing a book is not as hard as they make you think. Yeah. All you need to do is go to a library, go to a Barnes & Noble, look around you. Hundreds of thousands of books it can't be that hard if so many people do it. Now, writing a good book, yeah. that's a skill. That takes practice. That takes discipline. But the physical act of just sitting down and writing something from start to finish shouldn't be seen as climbing Mount Everest. And I think too often writing teachers and, and writers themselves, whether it's just that they want to feel good about the thing that they did, I, I think it's presented to new writers as this Herculean effort that very well might break you in the process. <laughs> and I just, I just think that's wrong. I think if it's that much of a struggle for you, then you are either doing it wrong in one way, or maybe it's not for you. It's like we talked about, it should be a joyous act. It should yeah. be something that you enjoy Every time you want to go and sit down. Now, look, we all know you don't want to write every day. And sometimes you sit down and you're, all right, I got to get my thousand words in today or whatever. But more often than not, when I, when I sit down and do that and I think, oh, boy, I'm really tired and I was doing a lot. But let me just try to get something out. Once you start doing it and once you get back into the story and once your fingers are on the keyboard, then that energy hits and the endorphins rush. And some of those end up being my best writing days. It's yeah. it's the act of doing it when you get your butt in the seat and you're yeah. doing it and you love doing it. It sh it actually comes across as pretty easy. Yeah. You know, but again, the, the coming up with the good story, fully fleshed characters you know, a plot that makes sense and that is intriguing and that people want to read all of that. Yes. Is a skill. It doesn't come naturally to everybody and it takes practice, 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 but I'd never want to see any up and coming or want to be writers daunted by the idea of, well, this is, it's too much for me. Yeah. Like the blank page is too daunting. Yeah. No, it's not. You can do it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with finishing your first novel, your first short story, whatever it is, get into the end, type the end, yeah. you did it, 
And you can look back and go, well, that is a bunch of crap. Put it in a drawer. <laughs> totally fine. We all have that. Yeah. But you did it. Now go do it again. Yeah. And enjoy the process. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, if, if, you, if you're not enjoying it, for goodness sake, why are you doing it? Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, Eric, this has been fun. I do, I do miss writer types, your, your podcast. Um, but uh, I understand it. And, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's a semi Herculean event to put together a good one all the time, day after day. Well, look, if, if you ever get sick, you, you call me and I'll step in. Okay. <laughs> but this has been great fun. And I, and I, you know, I've said this before. I can't believe it's taken me this long for us to cross paths, but I'm glad we have. And I see uh, a beautiful relationship moving on for years to come, young man. Well, I, 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 let me also just return the compliment on, on your show. I mean, I think, I think you having the experience of doing it, you, sir, are, are absolutely doing it right. And your your both roster of guests is is top notch. Uh, the, the way you present the show is great. You're, you're a fantastic interviewer. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Oh, man. Very, very humbling. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to let you go so that you can make that appointment. And uh, we'll be looking for more folks. If you want to learn more, go to ericbeatner.com. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again very soon, Eric. Thanks again. Excellent. Thanks, David. Thanks again to Eric Beatner and the book, There and Back. It's a book I think you will really enjoy. Hey, folks, on our next episode, special guest. Oh, man, hold on a second. Look at this. Where is it? Yes. You'll recall Joey Hartstone. We had him on last year, this legal thriller. I can't believe this is his debut, but it's true. Joey is making a return performance right here on the Thriller Zone. Pretty excited about it. Why? Two reasons. Sure, we're going to talk about this beautiful book again, The Local. But Joey has his hands in another dish. He is a screenplay writer and executive producer, i.e. showrunner, for the television show Your Honor. If you like Brian Cranston, I think easily one of maybe, maybe one of his best performances ever. We're going to be talking about that show, which, as I mentioned, Joey is show running. Want to know an extra little bonus to the show? My wife, Tammy Temple, is going to join as a co-host. She's so excited. She loves your honor. She totally digs Joey. She loved this book. So it's a win-win for everyone. I'm David Temple, your host. Next week, co-host Tammy Temple and Joey Hartstone right here on The Thriller Zone. Now in our fourth season. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.